copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to turn with me to Acts chapter 24 and verse 24. And we are going to continue our study through this uh, wonderful book of Acts. Today I want to talk to you about the, the danger of procrastination. And we're going to read today in Acts chapter 24, beginning in verse 24, just two verses. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for, for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. This is the word of God. And we're talking about the danger of procrastination. I want to ask you to, to join me in prayer as we come to God's word. Our Father, we come this morning and we bow our hearts before you, acknowledging you as our, as our Lord, as our God, our sovereign Savior. We praise you that you speak so clearly, so plainly, so pointedly to the things that we need to hear about. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives life and to strength to your word. And Father, we, we just ask you that today that we could hear your heart, your voice, your urgency, and that we might receive what you hear and we might make it alive in our own lives. We, we ask this now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Procrastination is, is a very common problem. I heard a story about a um, country boy who accidentally overturned the uh, uh, cart or the wagon full of corn while he was passing by on a road by his neighbor's house. And he, he's standing there looking at all this corn poured out and he's wringing his hands, he's pacing back and forth, and he said, Paul is not going to like this. Paul is going to be upset. And his neighbor sees what's, what's happening. He comes out of his house, looks at the situation, sees the boys in there, he's all distressed. And he says, uh, hey, Willis, I, I'm really sorry about your, about your wagon. Listen, he says, it's, it's late, you're tired, and... Um, you know, why don't you just come back to the house with me, get something to eat, rest a little bit, and then I'll come back out with you and help you get your wagon turned upright. And he said, well, uh, that's mighty nice of you, but I don't think Paul would be uh, happy about that. I, I don't know. And he said, well, so I don't think your Paul would mind. Why don't you just, you know, come back with me, uh, rest a little while, get something to eat, and, and I'll get you, I'll help you get your wagon back up. He said, okay, so he goes back to the house, he sits down, has a meal, and he sits there for a while, and he goes, I really appreciate this meal, I really appreciate your kindness, he said, but, but Paul is just going to be really upset. He said, Willis, 
I've known your Paul for a long time. Why do you think he's going to be so so upset? He said, well, well, Paul's still under that wagon load of corn back there. (laughs) There's danger in procrastination. And, you know, uh, there's a spiritual danger. And the spiritual danger is when we put off till tomorrow what God has told us to do today. Uh, the word procrastination is another one of those Latin words. You know, it's got that prefix pro that means before. And the, the root word, crass, is the word that means simply means tomorrow. So when you put it together, it's tomorrow or before or before tomorrow. In other words, it's when you put tomorrow before today. It's when you put off doing today what, what, or to, to a later time what should be done today. That's procrastination. And, you know, procrastination is a, is a, is a real problem for us. It, we're we're kind of like the guy that said, procrastination is my sin. It brings me nothing but sorrow. I know I should stop it. In fact, I will tomorrow. We all have a tendency to put off certain things. It's, it's part of our, our nature. But the most dangerous thing that you can do is to put off something that God says for you to do today to a later time. You know, there are three kinds of people who reject Jesus. There are three kinds of people who will never be saved. And first of all, there are people that just hate God. You realize that there are people that hate God, they hate Jesus, they hate the Bible, and they don't want to hear the truth. They just want to turn it off. They're always those kind of people. But then there are people that are that see themselves as being good people. Uh, they're good mothers, good fathers, good citizens. Uh, they're kind people. They do good things for other people. The problem is, is that they see their their kindness as being enough to satisfy God. But the, of course, the truth is, Jesus says there is none good. No, there's not one, Paul adds, that's good. Only God is good, and only God has the goodness that he requires. Uh, There's a third group of people that will never be saved, and those people are people who are procrastinators. They put off making that decision. They intend to be saved, not today, but some other time, soon. Uh, they're, They're looking for another opportunity, a a more opportune time. Uh, They're looking for a time when they get this taken care of or that taken care of. Then they'll make that decision. And, uh, but you know, procrastination may have sent more people to hell than any other sin. And we find Paul face to face with procrastination as we come to Acts chapter 24. And I want you just to recall with me for a moment how where Paul is. We started this long narrative way back in Acts, Acts chapter 20. And Paul, Paul heard from a prophet by the name of Agabus. And he said, if you go to, when you go to Jerusalem, you are going to be put in chains and you're going to be arrested. And his friend said, Paul, please don't go. But Paul knew that God was calling him to go. And so he goes anyway. Well, as soon as he gets to Jerusalem, what does he find? He finds that he is attacked by the Jews in the temple. And then he is rescued by a Roman commander by the name of Lysias. 
who, what does he do? He arrests him and puts him in chains, just as the prophet said would happen. Well, the next day, Lysias convenes a meeting of the religious leaders thinking that there's going to be a lot less chaos, but that's not the case. It falls apart just as every other meeting has before. And when Lysias discovers that there has been a a plot against uh, Paul to kill him, well, then he uh, has Paul escorted out of the city by a, a, a squad of Roman soldiers, a huge contingency of soldiers, and they take him to Caesarea to the to the governor's palace uh, there, uh, the governor by the name of Felix. And as we come to chapter 24, Paul is being accused by a lawyer that the Jewish council has has hired a man by the name of Tertullus, and he's making false charges against Paul. He gives his case, then Paul stands up and gives his defense, and he basically his defense is none of these things are true, and there's no evidence whatsoever that they're true, and that's Paul's case. So both sides have been heard. Uh, the Jews have presented their case, Paul has presented his case, now it's time for, for Felix to make a decision on the case. And so... It's a, it's a, here we are. Now, now, keep in mind that through this long narrative, there are two stories. There's the human story, and there's the God story. The human story is what Paul does to defend himself against all these false charges. The God story is what God is doing through Paul's adversity through Paul's imprisonment to bring the truth of salvation to people that he loves. And two of the people that he loves are this man, Felix, and his wife, Drusilla. And as we see how Felix and Drusilla respond to the message that they hear from Paul, we see four four spiritual danger signs regarding procrastination. Now, the first spiritual danger sign is familiarity without faith. You can be familiar with the gospel and not have faith. At the beginning of of chapter 24, this lawyer named Tertullus brings his charges. Paul then defends himself. And as I say, we're ready for the decision from of Felix. But look what happens. Verse 22. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. Now verse 22 tells us that Felix put them off. In other words, Felix doesn't want to make a decision. He doesn't want to release Paul because that's going to make the religious, the Jewish religious leaders furious. He doesn't want to condemn Paul because he knows he's a Roman citizen. He has no basis, no justification for condemning him. So what does he do? He doesn't make a decision. He says, okay, I'm just going to keep you in custody, but I'll give you a lot of liberty, and your friend's going to be almost like you're free anyway. You see, he doesn't want to make a decision. It's a decision not to decide. 
And the Holy Spirit tells us why Felix did this. Verse 22, Felix having a more exact knowledge about the way. Now, the way is a term that Luke uses to describe the entire uh, movement of the church during Acts. It, it's about how uh, people learned about Jesus and what he had done and all the people that chose to follow him. It, it, it's a term that was kind of shorthand for what we would call today Christianity. And, and he says Felix had a more exact knowledge about the way. And by the way, the way may come, have come from Jesus' own words in John 14, 6, where he said, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And, and so Felix has this, this more exact knowledge. That exact knowledge means a full knowledge, a complete knowledge. Now think about that. Felix, a Roman governor, has a complete knowledge of the way. How does he know about the way? Well, we don't know. Some think, well, his wife, uh, was a, was Drusilla was a, was a Jewish. Maybe she knew a lot about Jesus. Maybe she told him. We simply don't know. But he does. He has this, this understanding about the way. And you see, there is a danger of being familiar with the gospel without ever having trusted Jesus as your Savior. See, no matter how familiar you are with the facts, if you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you will not go to heaven when you die. Some people miss heaven by a distance of 18 inches. That's the distance between your head and your heart. That's the difference between knowing and truly believing. And some people know they got it up here, but they don't have it in here. It was, it was 1976. I had just transferred to East Tennessee State University and changed my major to fine art. I was a new Christian, very new Christian, and I was a bona fide Jesus freak. You know, Karen and I were listening the other day to the uh, old song by... Uh, DC Talk. You heard that uh, D, uh, Jesus freak? It says, what will people think when they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? What will people do when they know that it's true? I don't really care if they label me a Jesus freak. There ain't no disguising the truth. And I tell you, when I showed up to East Tennessee State, there wasn't any disguising the truth. <laughs> I was just a Jesus freak. And you know, they call you a Jesus freak because you tend to be a little extreme, you know? <laughs> I was a new Christian, and, and listen, I was, I was pretty extreme. And, but even though I was a Jesus freak, God allowed me to have a rather um, close interaction with two professors during my time there. And, and though there were times when there was an element of, uh, you know, of mocking and, and superiority from them, they still allowed me to talk to them about the gospel, about Jesus, and there were, there were times when we would have some pretty serious conversations. And, and I, one of these professors was a playboy. I mean, I won't tell you all about that. You don't need to hear about all the evil things he did and was involved in. One of them was a self-announced uh, alcoholic. I mean, his, his identity was, I am an alcoholic, and that's all he talked about. He wasn't 
He was sober at the time, but that's all he knew. And I remember there was one occasion after many of these gospel conversations where this playboy professor and I were sitting in his office talking about Jesus. And it was like the Holy Spirit was, you could just sense that he was was sensing conviction. And he even had tears in his eyes. But when it came down to like making the decision, he wiped the tears out of his eyes and he just said, I can never be a Christian because I can never give up the way I live. He was talking about his immoral lifestyle. And I, you know, that was the last time that I ever sensed there was anything there from that guy, from a spiritual spiritual interest. It was like he, he turned the corner and there was no more. The other professor was one surprised me. We were in the studio one day and we were talking about fountains being a type of moving sculpture. And he looks at me and he says, you know, there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins. You know that old hymn, don't you? And I'm standing there, I never heard that. I never heard that before. And he's laughing at me. Oh, you're the big Christian, Jesus freak. Doesn't know about that hymn, you know. I I didn't know. I mean, I'd never heard it before. I was so new. Here was a guy that grew up in church. He knew all kinds of hymns I didn't know. He knew more about the Bible than I knew. He knew all this stuff. And he's laughing at me. But you know what? He knew all. He was familiar. But he had never trusted Jesus. He had no faith. Most of us in this room know the facts, don't we? We, we, we know who Jesus is, that he's the son of God. We know that he was born of the Virgin Mary. We know that he lived a perfect, sinless life. We know that he went to the cross and took upon himself our sin and that he suffered and paid the penalty for our sin. But we know that he was buried, that he rose again from the dead, that he's alive. We know that whoever believes upon him will have eternal life. We know that he is coming again. We know that he is Lord. We know all those things. Most of us could quote John 3.16. But to have a thorough knowledge of the Bible, of the gospel, and never have put your faith in Jesus Christ means that you are headed to eternal destruction separated from God forever. You see, familiarity without faith will not save you. There's a second danger sign. And that is hearing without heeding. Hearing without heeding. Now, after adjourning the trial, Felix and Drusilla brought Paul back in for a private session. This is pretty fascinating. Look at verse 24. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, just imagine Paul being summoned into the presence of Felix and Drusilla, they were the power couple uh, in Roman-occupied Israel, in Palestine. And Felix was, really, he was an impressive man. You know, he was born a slave. But through cunning and trickery, 
he managed to work his way up and become the governor of the entire territory of Palestine. One ancient historian described Felix as a master of cruelty and lust. And he was a power player. Drusilla, at this time, she was about 19 years old. Just just 19. And, and she was the youngest daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. And she, had, uh, she, was, she was Jewish. But she didn't worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When she was 14... She was married for the first time. She was given in marriage uh, to a, one of the kings of, Assyri- of Syria. And she was very unhappy in that marriage. And when Felix saw her, he was struck by her, her great beauty. And he was determined to have her for himself. And he told her uh, reportedly that he was going to make her happy. Now that's a play on Felix's name because... Felix is the, is the Latin word for happy. And, and, and he used a, with the help of a magician, he talked Drusilla into leaving her husband and coming and living with him. And so at age 16, she leaves uh, her husband and comes and enters into an illicit love affair with Felix. Sometime later, it's, it's unclear, uh, she became his his wife. So Felix and Drusilla, see, are lost people acting like lost people. Have you ever noticed that lost people act like lost people? You know, it was interesting. Someone asked me a question in our uh, new members class uh, the other night. I said, how do, how do you respond to, you know, people that are unsaved that, you know, they're living, uh, you know, uh, kind of a rough lifestyle when they come into your church. And I said, well, we just, let act, we just let lost people act like lost people. My problem is when saved people act like lost people. <laughs> that's our problem. <laughs> so, you see, that's, that's what we do. We just, lost people will act like lost people. That's why they need the gospel. And, and so here, they, they're acting like this. Uh, and they want to hear from Paul. And, and Paul comes in front of them, and I don't know, maybe they were curious. Maybe they thought, well, this will be entertaining. Maybe this is like watching a little you know, YouTube video before dinner. This was something to do at this time. And they, they, but when they hear from Paul, notice what they hear. They hear him speaking about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul comes, what does, he spot, what does he talk about? Does he talk about the weather? Talk about the family? Does he talk about sports? Talk about politics? No, you know what he talks about? He talks about faith in Christ. And, and he pleaded with them to turn from their sin and to put their trust in Jesus Christ. Notice very carefully that the Holy Spirit records that they heard him speak. They heard, but that's all they did. They heard without heeding. And that's the second spiritual warning sign, hearing without heeding. Now listen, it's true that hearing is essential for faith. 
Because Romans uh, 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. People have to hear the gospel in order to be saved. Can I say that again, folks? People have to hear the gospel in order to have faith in Christ and be saved. And we must speak the gospel. It is, it is, it's, it's wonderful to do good things for people. It's wonderful to, to, to give a, have an example, to be an example in your life. But that is not enough. People must hear the truth of the gospel because you can't, you can't have faith in something you don't know about. They have to hear it. And, and even just hearing is not enough because, you see, Hearing the gospel requires a response. James chapter 1 verse 22 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Did you know that you can delude yourself by hearing? For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. You know, every time I look in the mirror, it has a message for me. You know, mirror, mirror in the wall, who's the scariest of them all? (laughs) There's a message right in the mirror. When when I look in the mirror in the morning, it says, you got to do something with that hair, Right? Uh, it says, you know, wipe the chocolate off your face. Uh, you know, change, uh, you need a new t-shirt, one's not gravy stained. Or the most, the next message I've been getting the most time is, no more dessert for you. Uh, you get a message, right, when you look in the mirror. But sometimes you look in the mirror and you see that something needs to be done. There's a message there. And for whatever reason, you walk away without doing it. Have you ever done that? You don't do what you, and, and sometimes you can walk away and ha- how quickly you forget what you actually look like. And you walk through the day and you come back to that mirror a little later and you look in there and you stand there looking like Bozo, you know, with your hair sticking up and a chocolate all over your face and the gravy stained t-shirt and you think, oh no, I've been walking around all day looking like that. How did I do that? I forgot already. It happens. And you see, that is a danger for us as well because God's word is like a mirror. When we look into the word of God, it shows us what we're like. It shows us our sin. It shows us our problem. It shows us that we've got something that we need to do, that we need to take care of. And we can read his word, we can hear his word, and we can know that there's a problem, and then we can get up and walk out of here and not do it. And how quickly we forget. I mean, since we get through the doors almost, or we get up out of our seat, we've already forgotten what it was that God was saying to me. That's what it's like when we simply hear the word without heeding when we hear the word without obeying. But listen, if you walk away after hearing what God wants you to do without doing anything, 
you are continuing down the road to destruction. You're continuing toward destruction in your life. And you can forget it, and it stops bothering you. But listen, friend, you're on the road to destruction. God shows you what you need to do, and you can walk away. And listen, church members, you you say, I'm saved, great. But listen, you can believe, you can start, you can be deceived, you can delude yourself. You can think that because I'm hearing preaching, because I'm in a, a Bible fellowship class, because I'm in a Bible study, because you're hearing these things, that you're growing spiritually. Not necessarily. Hearing does not mean heeding. Uh, hearing does not mean growing spiritually. Obeying means it's when you obey. That's when you begin to grow. That's when you do it. So it's not a, it's, it means nothing. It's powerless for simply to hear. We need the heeding. There's a third danger. And that is conviction without conversion. Felix is a prime example of someone who was convicted but was not converted. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit shows you uh, the reality of your sin. It, it, it's, when you, when you, it's when you start feeling bad and concerned over your sin. And when the Holy Spirit does that, he oftentimes shows us our need for Christ. And it's a, it's a, it's a conviction. And you can be convicted without being converted. Now, I want you to notice how Paul preached, and I want you to notice how Felix responded. Verse 25, but as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Now, to use our previous analogy, Paul held up the mirror of God's word to Paul, to uh, Felix, And when Felix looked in there and saw his sin, saw his condition, saw what he was like, he said to Paul, get that mirror away from me. He he saw his problem, but he turned away without doing anything about it. And he's frightened. He's concerned. He's, He's worried. That's another way of saying convicted. He's convicted, but he's not converted. And notice that he stands in stark contrast to this lawyer, Tertullus, who spoke to Felix with flatteries and told him, oh, how wonderful and marvelous he was as a, as a leader, and he just simply flattered him. But when Paul spoke to uh, Felix, he spoke to him, it says, discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Discussing is an interesting word. It literally means to, to, to say thoroughly. In other words, he talked about these issues in a complete way, thoroughly. He covered them. And, and Paul talked about God's standard of righteousness. Felix, yeah, you may have done some things that you think are great in your eyes as the governor here in Palestine, but your righteousness is really it's just as filthy rags in the eyes of God. Your, your righteousness is not God's righteousness. God requires perfection. See? 
Did you know that? Did you know that God requires perfection? Yeah. And he says, Felix, God requires perfection, but God supplies uh, uh, righteousness, perfection. He gives to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He made him who knew no sin. There's the perfection of Jesus. To be sin on our behalf. There's his sacrifice on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And there is the righteousness of Christ imputed, given to us for our benefit. So Paul talks to him about righteousness. And he talks to him about self-control. And Felix was frightened because he had no self-control. He's already been in an illicit affair. He's continuing other illicit affairs in his life at this time. He has no self-control. In fact, he would say, I can't help it. Like so many people would say, that's just the way I am and I can't change it. You know what that's called? That's called bondage to sin. People are in bondage to sin. They don't have self-control. But when Christ comes in, when he changes you, when he transforms you, he gives you a self-control. He gives you the ability to choose to do what is right rather than choosing what's to do wrong. He's the God of self-control. And again, Felix felt frightened when he heard about the judgment to come. Friends, you know, in our world today, Preachers are all saying, writing these articles and saying, man, you got to stop talking about judgment. You got to stop talking about hell. You got to stop talking about that stuff. Because people don't like that. They don't want to hear that. Friends, you may not want to hear it. It's just the truth, it's just reality. There's a judgment to come. And Paul, when he preached, he talked about the judgment to come. There's a judgment to come. Everybody's going to give an account. In fact, it says in, in, second, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. Prince, everybody is going to give an account And if you don't have the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to your account, you are going to give account for all that stuff on your own. And you're going to experience the judgment of God. And it's a scary thing. But, you know, listen, sometimes people think that they have been saved when all that has really happened is that they have been convicted. They've been convicted of their sin but they've never turned from their sin. And being convicted is not the same as being converted. When I was a a boy, my dad brought home a little German shepherd pup, very young, just a few weeks old. We had to nurse him with an eyedropper and and a baby bottle. And he grew up to be a big, strong dog. I mean, he was very smart. He was one of those kind of dogs you didn't even have to work at training he just you could talk to him you know and he seemed like he knew what you were you were saying very very obedient except when he saw another dog we lived out in a rural setting if there was some dog passing by he would take off after that dog i mean with all of his might with all of his strength and no amount of yelling whistling calling crying 
cursing, would keep that, would turn that dog around. He was going to go until he got to that dog and did what he wanted, which is usually fight or, or put it in submission. And then after he had done what he wanted to do, he would come back. He'd come back and he would pin those ears back. And he would put his head down and he'd kind of walk low and slow. And he'd walk up to you and I'm standing there, you sorry dog, what are you, you don't obey me, you know. And he's walking up to me, and, and I have to give him some real, you know, uh, just, uh, I have to give him some hard time. And then <laughs> everything's, everything's great, you know, we're ready to play now, everything's good. You say, can dogs experience conviction? I don't know if he ever experienced conviction or not, but I know one thing, he never repented. <laughs> Because every time he saw a dog, he still went off, you know. And, you know, he, he allowed himself the luxury of feeling guilty. And some people, some people come to church to feel guilty. Now, you, don't, you might think that's strange, but some people come to church to feel guilty. But they have no intention of changing, of repenting. Because when they come to uh, church, they let the preacher step on, quote, step on their toes for a little while and make them feel bad. And that's the price that they pay for their sin. And then everything's okay. (laughs) And I'm ready to go run after the next thing that I see and I want to do. Feeling bad is not the same as repenting. Feeling guilt is not the same as conversion. It tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow that is according to the will of God means that you feel bad enough about your sin that you want to turn away from it, that you don't want to do it anymore. And that you don't have any regrets about it. You said, you put that over there, that's way behind me. I don't want to go back to that. And true repentance brings about salvation. But the sorrow of the world, listen, it makes you feel bad, but it doesn't change your behavior. You know, hear what I'm saying? It can make you feel bad, but it doesn't change your behavior. Real repentance makes us want to get things right with God and turn away from those things. Beware of conviction without conversion. And there's a final sign, danger sign, and that's delay without decision. Delay without decision. What happened to Felix? Did he ever bring Paul back again? Look at verse 26. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Now, for two years, Paul was in 
prison. And it tells us that during that time that Felix would often bring Paul in and converse with him. So they're having, over this time, frequent gospel conversations. But notice that when we get here, we see that the conviction that Felix had felt at the first, that concern, that fright, that's gone. Why? What happens? Because the longer we put off, the longer we delay making decision, the less the conviction comes. It's, it's a scary thing. And so that we get to the final, we get to the very end. Felix is being replaced by Portius Festus. And Felix says, okay, I'm just going to leave Paul in there for political expediency. Because it'll make the Jews happy. You say, what happened to Felix? Well, history tells us that he was called back to Rome and he was sentenced to death. He was condemned to die. Somehow, he escaped uh, execution and he just disappears from the pages of history. We don't know what happened to Felix. He just disappears. What happened to his wife, Drusilla? Well, history tells us that her life came to a sudden end 21 years later. She was on a trip to Pompeii when Mount Vesuvius erupted and she was frozen in history with all the other people of Pompeii and the, and the volcanic ash of that disaster. Her life came to a sudden end. Friends, it's dangerous to put off trusting Jesus. The God who promises you today does not promise you another opportunity tomorrow. And, and like Felix, you may harden your heart one time too many. You may harden your heart to the word of God to the point that now you no longer feel any conviction. It doesn't bother you. You're able to hear the gospel and, it, and just push it off. You know, the God who promises you today doesn't promise you another day. Like Drusilla, your life can come to a sudden end. I sat with a, with a lady recently whose son had been given a, a big promotion and a huge pay raise. And on the first day of work at that new position, getting out of bed, he fell over dead of a massive heart attack. Young man, just fell over. And she, like most moms, like most loved ones, wanted with everything in her as a believer to believe that her son had trusted Jesus, and she had to think of everything that she could to try to convince herself that he somehow was a Christian. But she had no confidence whatsoever of, what, of whether or not he really spent, where he's spending eternity. After the first service, talking about that, someone else came to me and said, 
Thank you, Pastor, for preaching that. I lost a brother this week who he was familiar with the gospel. He had heard. He had even been convicted. But he had not been, he had not heeded. He has not been converted. And she had tears in her eyes as she told me those words. Friends, life is tissue paper thin. You don't know when your life will be open. Life is tissue paper thin, but eternity is forever. And, and, there may, and there, the Bible indicates that there may be a time in your life when, when, you, when you no longer can, can find hope in Christ. It's a scary thing. Uh, there may be a time when, you're, when your life, when you, have, when you felt like, well, boy, you were close to death. You narrowly escaped death. You may have felt so close to death. But, friend, there has never been a time when you were closer to death than you are right now. You are as close to eternity as you'll ever, you've ever been right now. And when I think about what Paul might have said to Felix, I think maybe he might have said some of the words that he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, I urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Do you understand? The grace of God is has you in here in this moment, in this place, hearing the truth about Jesus Christ and salvation. You're hearing it. It's the grace of God that you uniquely in all of history are in a place where you can hear with clearness who Jesus is and about salvation. And he says, I urge you, don't receive it in vain. Don't let it be useless. For he says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not sometime in the future, uh, not some more convenient time, but not tomorrow, but now. Isaiah says, 55 verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Did you know that there's a time when he can be found? Did you know that there's a time when he is near? Let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. You know what? That's, 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 that's repentance. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. That's conversion. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's salvation. The Bible holds out the prospect that there may be a time when you won't be able to find God. When you won't have a sense of need. When you won't have that conviction. And that's why the Bible always talks about salvation not tomorrow, but today. Now is the acceptable time of salvation. And Christian, listen. The same is true for you. When do you serve God? Tomorrow? Sometime in the future? When you get this worked out? When you get that straightened out? Is that when you're going to start serving God? You don't have tomorrow. All you have is today. Today. Now. Dr. Stephen Olford was considered one of the great preachers of previous days. People were always surprised when they would meet him in person. They were surprised at his stature because he was a very short man. And they were surprised because when they heard him preach, he sounded like a giant. He sounded huge, a prophet of God. 
uh, when Stephen Olford was a young boy, he, he said, Lord, I, I trust you to save me, and I, and I want to I live my life for you. But as he got a little older in his teenage years and in his, in his early uh, 20s, he, he, he began to forsake that uh, career path. He began to turn away from the commitment that he had made to serve the Lord. And, and he decided to be an engineer. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what God's called you to do. But, but God had called Stephen Olfer to preach, and he knew it. And he said uh, no to the Lord in, in this area of his life. And he found out when he began to say no to God in this area, he started saying no to God in many other areas of his life. That's the way it always is. God had called Stephen Olfer to preach, and, and he, was, he knew it. But Stephen began to do his own thing. He began to race motorcycles and pursue his engineering studies. In the back of his mind, he started telling himself, you know, well, I'm going to make a lot of money and I'll give to Christian causes and that kind of thing. I'll, I'll take care of that. But sometime in the future, I'll do what God wants me to do. But Stephen Olford discovered that God does not allow us to follow our own path without disciplining us. And he became ill deathly ill physically ill and he and the doctors told him his family that he was going to die he was in a hospital in england very close to death and he received a letter from his missionary father from africa this was the days before when there was no email there was no uh, international phone calls. His father didn't even know that he was in the hospital. He was simply writing this letter because he was concerned about uh, Stephen and the life that he was choosing to follow. In that letter, he pleaded with him to start living for Jesus right away. And in that letter, there was a little couplet that perhaps you've heard. And it said this, Only one life will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last. And that little, those words just gripped Stephen's heart. And he thought, here I am, Lord. I'm reserving my life for myself. Rather than giving myself to you to accomplish what you want. And he prayed a prayer in that moment. It's a prayer, a prayer I'm wondering if you would be willing to pray. He said, dear God... Anytime, anywhere, any cost. That's the prayer, the simple prayer that he prayed in that moment. He gave himself back to God. And God raised him up from that sick bed and he used Stephen Alford in a mighty way the rest of his life. He's now in heaven with the Lord. But I wonder, are you willing to pray that prayer? Dear God, anytime, anywhere, any cost. I'll tell you a lot about yourself. Anywhere, anytime, any cost. Don't put it off till tomorrow. If you've never been saved, be saved today. If you're not using your life, you say you're a Christian, you're not using your life for the Lord, start serving him today. Let's pray.
Now, I want to ask you, if you would, this moment, to be serious about this. To put your attention on God. And ask him, God, where am I? What have you shown me today? What are you saying today? What have I heard? If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, would you be willing to say to God today, God, anytime, that would be now. Anywhere, that would be here. Any cost, that would be your life. I want to live my life for you. I want to trust you. I want to trust you to save me and give me eternal life and to use my life for you. That's hard. That's hard. But that's what God's asking of you today. And I wonder if you'd say to him, God, I I know uh, I know, I, I know I've sinned. I feel that conviction. But I know just feeling bad is not enough. I'm willing to turn to you. And I'm willing to trust you to take away my sin and give me eternal life. And Christian, would you be willing to say, God, anywhere, anytime, any cost. I want to use my life for you. You making that commitment to him today? Today. Not tomorrow. Today. Father, help us now. We need you. We need, Lord, to to go beyond our familiarity to our to faith, the real faith. We need to go beyond hearing, Lord, to heeding, beyond conviction to conversion, from delay to decision. God, help us make this decision with you. We know it's your grace, your power that enables it. In Jesus' name, amen.